Our Father, we thank You for this day. We thank You for Your mercy to us through Your Son, Jesus. And we thank You for awakening us to it by the power of Your Spirit. We pray that our time together would be transformative, that You would make us more like Yourself in Jesus by the power of Your Spirit and that you would lead us to respond wholeheartedly and fully and joyfully to whatever you call us to do through your word. In Christ's name, amen. Okay, well last week we looked at a larger section, the Gospel of Matthew. We're going to be looking at the same one I'll read Shorter, two shorter segments from this larger section in the Gospel of Matthew. We're in Matthew chapter 1. You can read with me a few verses beginning at 18, and then we'll read a few verses in chapter 2. Matthew 1, 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man, and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he'll save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now jump down to chapter 2, verse 13. Wise men have come to King Herod and then gone to visit Jesus and worshiped him. And now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose, and he took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt. So Matthew in this section has strung together, as we saw last week, five stories of the earliest days of Jesus' life. And as we looked at this, we saw that Matthew really has one primary point in all of these stories, and it's this, that God is fulfilling the prophets with the arrival of Jesus. Jesus Christ is the promised divine king, and he brings the promised redemption. That's Matthew's main point here. So we're going to be looking at sections that fall within this overall story that we looked at last week, but we're going to be doing it from a different angle. We're going to consider what this section teaches us about the value of human life. Therefore, we're not going to be focusing on Matthew's main point like last week. Instead, we're going to be looking at the implications of this text for understanding the value of human life. So, this morning is Sanctity of Human Life Sunday. The sanctity of human life means that all life from conception to death is sacred. It's valuable. It has inherent value. Now, that's a positive-sounding phrase leads us to think that what we're going to be doing this morning is celebrating life. And that's true in one sense. We do mark this day off once a year to remind ourselves of the value that God places on all human life, but this is not going to be a celebratory message because the reason why we have Sanctity of Human Life Sunday as a nation is because we live in a time when human life is not widely honored especially human lives in the womb. So to say the sanctity of human life would be like saying the sanctity of Jewish life in Nazi Germany. Or to say the sanctity of human life is like saying the sanctity of African American life in pre-civil rights America. Right? To say the sanctity of Jewish life or the sanctity of African American life is to say a wonderful truth. But it would have needed to be said only at those times because of the astonishing devaluation of 
those lives at those times. And it's the same today. So I do not wish that we had to take a Sunday to remind ourselves of the sanctity of human life and to say that it's valuable. And in one sense, this morning is a celebration of God's gift of human life, but this is also a painful morning. We probably don't want to think about this this morning. And I want you to know that I am aware that there are many in this room who have a close experience with this, and your experience might be deeply painful, and it might be all brought back to the surface this morning. And so we all need to remember that this is not an issue out there. This is an issue in here, and it's an issue for all of us. So I want to be clear at the outset when talking about this that this is, we're not doing this to ultimately bring pain, but to bring healing. So the the banner over this whole morning is the grace of God, the central message of the Bible that God wants to give us in relation to this kind of topic is grace for sinners of any kind, grace for those who have performed abortions, for those who have undergone abortions, for those who have supported abortions, and those who have been apathetic and done nothing to respond to what's going on today, or those who have responded far too little, and that is me, and it may be you, and there's grace for me and for you for these particular sins. There is no sin we've mentioned or will mention today that is outside of the reach of God's loving eagerness to give grace. So this morning we'll consider what Jesus' earliest days have to do with the sanctity of human life. And here's what we'll see. Because the lives of the unborn are valued and precious to God, they are worthy of our protection. And because the lives of the unborn are devalued and discarded by many, we must give them our protection. So we'll see three main people in these stories And each of these three main people who are the main characters of these stories have something to tell us about human life. Jesus shows us the the, the value of human life. Herod shows us the devaluing of human life. And Joseph shows us the protection of human life. We'll look at each of these. Joseph, Herod, or Jesus, Herod, and Joseph. So first, Jesus shows us the value of human life. Now, Mary and Joseph are engaged. They haven't slept together. They're waiting until their marriage is consummated, but Mary becomes pregnant. Verse 18 describes the situation. When his, that is Jesus' mother, had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Now, that phrase, she was found to be with child, is literally this. She was found having one in womb. The Gospel of Luke tells us the same thing with more detail. It says, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. And then Mary, when she's told this in the Gospel of Luke, is told of another pregnancy. In Luke 1.36, she's told your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. When Mary hears this, she immediately runs to visit Elizabeth. And Luke says, when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. Now, let's just notice something obvious from these stories. They're all written with the assumption that what is inside of these women are children, human beings. It says that Elizabeth conceived a son, not one who would become a son. She has a son inside of her. It says that Elizabeth's baby leapt for joy in her womb. John the Baptist is inside of her, probably six months along or so, and he's moving around. He's a happy baby in there. Luke says it's a baby. That's the same word he uses to describe children outside the womb. There's no difference. It's a baby inside there. So this is the view of human life in these stories. It's the view of human life throughout the Bible. It speaks of the unborn as real human beings, and it calls them that from the earliest stages of development in the womb. And therefore, so should we. 
And you do not have to believe the Bible to believe this. I, I know that there, there may be several here who um, may not actually believe the Bible, yet is God's Word. And, and you're even curious about what the Bible may say about this topic. And so, I'll let you know that, that this view of human life does not conflict with science. It's actually confirmed and supported by this. The science of embryology shows us that this is a whole and living human being at the earliest stages of development. From conception, the moment of fertilization, a unique human being comes into existence with its own genetic code, wholly different from either parent. From, from conception, that is not a part of another person, that is a person, wholly different and unique with its own genetic code, a living human being. And this is not actually significantly debated in intellectual circles today. Here's what, one of the, here, here's what the chief executive of one of the largest independent abortion providers in the UK said in 2008. She said this. So I just want you to hear her, her own testimony. She said, we can accept that the embryo, this is the very beginning of stage develop, development, we can accept that the embryo is a living thing in the fact that it has a beating heart, that it has its own genetic system within it. It's clearly human in the sense that it's not a gerbil, and we can recognize that it is a human life. What she says next, though, is the key point. So, what she just said would mean that she would read these stories of Mary, and she would agree that is a human being, a living human life inside of Mary. That's not debated. But here's what she said next. The point is not when does human life begin, but when does it really begin to matter? Well, folks, that is the question today. It is not debated in intellectual circles if it's a human being anymore. That's, that's largely settled. The question is, what competing values do we have here and what outweighs the other? Do the human beings that have come into existence in the womb matter? Do they have the same value as those of us who are discussing this very question? Matthew shows us a profound answer of yes to that question. See, Mary's pregnancy is unique. She's carrying in her womb a uniquely valuable human being. But the uniqueness and the unique value of her son in her, her womb is exactly what shows us the value of every child in every womb. So let's think this through. First, let's consider the unique value of this child. And then let's consider how that shows us the value of every child. So Mary is carrying Jesus Christ. She's told that this baby inside of her will be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. This is a divine child. This is the God-man, God becoming a human being in Jesus Christ. And this God-man is inside of Mary. Now, here's what this means. We grasp at the mystery of this when we think of Jesus Christ as fully God and fully human. And at Christmas, we, we try to grasp the mystery of that truth uh, being shown in a baby. When Jesus was a baby in a manger, it was true. But this is also saying that Jesus was fully God and fully man, not just as a baby in Mary's arms, but as a baby in Mary's womb. Jesus Christ is what we now often refer to as a fetus. He was an embryo. Jesus Christ was an embryo. And as I thought about this, it struck me, it was it hard to grasp, not only wrap your mind around that, but it almost sounds strange, right? You have to think about it. I do. Is that, can we say that? And you know what I think? I think the reason I had trouble saying that 
and questioning whether or not I can say that is because the words embryo and fetus have been dehumanized and depersonalized. We don't use those words to refer to people. So when I apply them to Jesus, I think, wait a minute, can I, can I say that? But yes, because embryos and fetuses are people just like a child, an infant, and a senior citizen, anyone, whatever names we want to call categories of ages, they're people. And Jesus Christ, the God-man, was such from the womb. So that's the unique, astonishing value of Mary's child in her womb was God himself who became human, not at birth, but at conception. And as Mary visits Elizabeth, John the Baptist leaps for joy in the presence of embryo Jesus. Jesus was probably at the earliest stages of his development and growth here, but he's there, and he's a whole human being, just like science affirms. So that's the unique and infinite value of Mary's child. Now, how does that show us the value of every child? Well, Christians refer to this as the incarnation, when God became a human being in Jesus. And one of the central things that the incarnation affirms is the goodness of life in a material world. So, for example, the fact that God came and took on a human body, a physical body when he became a man, affirms the value of physicality in human bodies. They're not bad. That's confirmed when Jesus comes to take one on himself. Or the fact that Jesus had a job, likely as a carpenter of sorts, affirms the value of work, right? Well, also the fact that Jesus became a human being affirms the value of human life. Graham Cole, professor, put it this way, the very fact that God became truly human underlines the value of human life. The creator did not become a lion or a dolphin or a parrot. He became one of us he says. So, this is the foundation of the sanctity of human life. Not just that God created human life, but that He entered into His creation and became a human being Himself. God not only created human, humanity with value, but He showed it at the incarnation. Now, we can take this a step further. The fact that Jesus became a human being shows us that Human life has value. Every human has value. But he didn't just come as an adult. And he didn't just come as an infant. He came as a pre-born human being in the womb. So this then is one of the greatest affirmations of the value of the unborn that can be made. That God came in Jesus and he began his life like we all begin at conception, in a womb, as an embryo, smaller than the tip of a pin. So God does not discard adults. He became one of them. God does not discard children because he, he shows us that he, he became one of them. And God does not discard embryos or fetuses. He became one of them. And therefore, neither should we discard any of these. So Jesus' incarnation shows us the value of human life, of every human life from conception on. Now second, Herod. In Herod, we see the devaluing of human life. Now Jesus was born into a time and place like ours. It wasn't safe for babies. And the government did not protect the rights of children. Matthew 2, 1 says he was born in the days of Herod the king. So, wise men traveled to Jerusalem looking for a newborn king. And they came to the current king, Herod. And they asked him in verse 2, you can read with me, where is he who's been born king of Jews? Simple question. They're looking for a king. Well, Herod didn't know, so he found out. The prophets, he found out, said that there would be a coming king who would be born in Bethlehem. So Herod sends the wise men to Bethlehem and he asks them to let him know when they find this newborn king. The wise men do find Jesus. The wise men worship Jesus. But then they're warned in a dream that Herod is not so uh, forthright with them. 
Herod doesn't want to find out where this newborn baby is so that he can worship him. He wants to find baby Jesus so he can kill him. So the wise men wisely don't tell him. When Herod realizes that they've left without telling him, he gets a new idea. Right, his source is gone. So he would have just found out which child it was and he would have just killed that one child. But now he only knows the town. Bethlehem. So he has all the baby boys, born two and under, killed. Infanticide. Bethlehem was a town of perhaps less than about a thousand people at the time, so there's about 10 to 20 or so baby boys killed. So why did he do this? Well, there's two reasons. First, because he did not value human life. He didn't value the lives of these babies, right? He didn't have to do it this way, right? He could have taken the time to figure out which child it was. He could have put out a search and find out who saw these, this entourage coming to a particular home. Let's go to those people. He could have spent the time to do that, but he didn't. He had all the boys killed because it was easy, right? It was easier than searching for Jesus, The lives of those boys were a small thing to him. It wasn't worth as much as his time. Those babies were not valued by him. But there's a second reason why he did this, and it's because he is radically self-centered. Look back at verse 3. How did Herod respond to the news of the newborn king? It says, when Herod the king heard this, He was troubled. And then, when he found out that the wise men weren't going to tell him where Jesus was, verse 16 says he became furious. And out of this rage, he had those children killed. Now, why the rage? Well, because if there's a new king, what does that make the current one? Right? It meant that Herod's rule was threatened. He knows that if Jesus is king, if this newborn child is king, then his days are numbered as king. So he's motivated here by self-preservation. And this is in keeping with everything we know from history about Herod. Right? So some people will read this story and think, no way that happened. But this is actually entirely consistent with what we know from, of Herod from historical resources and and sources. In his later years, Herod became obsessed with his throne, obsessed with defending it. So there was a royal family named the Hasmoneans who were the greatest threat to his throne. So he had several of them killed along with their supporters. Some of the Hasmoneans were directly related to him through marriage. So he had a brother-in-law, his mother-in-law, and even his own wife killed. In his later years, he was suspicious of three of his sons that they wanted to take his throne, and so he had them killed. So what he did in Bethlehem is what he always did. And this also then confirms what we suspect about his motives. He's deeply committed to his own authority, his own power, his own freedom to do whatever he wants, to live his life his way, his own prestige, and anyone who gets in the way of that commitment will be killed. He valued, in other words, his own comfortable life higher than anyone else's entire life, right? He'll take someone's whole life so that he can preserve his comfortable life. And, it, and his life then and his comfortable life was valued higher than the lives of these infant boys. And here's the tragedy. Herod is not a historical anomaly. His spirit is with us today. In various places and in various degrees, it's here. So the spirit of Herod is the mindset. It's in the mindset that says children are not a blessing. Children are in the way. It says that they're not as valuable as one's status or power or comfort. The spirit of Herod is seen in the commitment to valuing one's own comfortable life over the actual life of another. This is the mindset that led to the infanticide of Bethlehem, and this is the mindset that leads to many abortions today 
in our area, in our time, in our country, in our world. The spirit of, the spirit of Herod is seen in a father who pressures his daughter to get an abortion because an unwed pregnant daughter might cause his status to fall. The spirit of Herod is seen in a boyfriend who funds an abortion because the child will be getting in the way of his future plans. The spirit of Herod is seen in a woman who submits to this because the child is a roadblock in her career path. The spirit of Herod is seen in parents who go through with this because a third or maybe this is the fourth child It's hard to imagine how they'll financially pull it off. It'll be too much of a financial burden. And there's another spirit from Herod's day that still lingers. It's the spirit of complacency. See, who actually did the killing in Bethlehem? Herod didn't walk over there with a sword. It said that Herod sent and had these babies killed. So who were these men who heard Herod's orders and refused to resist? Who were these men who assumed that because the government says it's okay to do something like this, well, okay? Who were these men who obeyed their king at the cost of obeying their God? So people can be swayed to do terrible things. It happened to Herod's men. It happened to Hitler's men and women. It happened to America's men and women not too long ago who were complacent with slavery and lynching. And it happens today. There are over one million abortion procedures done in the U.S. every year. Over the past 40 years, there have been about 55 million abortions, all of them done legally with the approval of our nation's laws, with the approval of several of our nation's presidents. And this is not an American issue alone. This is a global issue. There are about 40 million abortions each year worldwide, which means over the past seven or eight years, this is the equivalent of the entire population of America being eliminated. And each of these represents multiple people's involvement through direct action or passive inaction. It represents doctors who perform them. It represents women who undergo them. It represents the men who pressure their wives or daughters to do them. And folks, that is a high number. Sociologists have done studies that say perhaps over half of the women say they felt forced to do this by some man in their lives. This is not a women's issue, folks. There are men who are at guilt here as well. This represents the indifference as well and the inaction of millions who stand by and do nothing at this. And so there's great guilt for this. And this story of this child, this uniquely valuable child, Jesus Christ, offers comfort to all of us in this guilt. Because in this story, you'll notice God preserves Jesus' life. He sends an angel to Joseph. God's taking the initiative here. He sends an angel to Joseph so that Jesus escapes Herod's sword. And we know why. And we know that the reason why Jesus escaped Herod's sword was not so that he wouldn't die. It's that he wouldn't die yet, right? Because he was going to die. The reason why Jesus' life was spared from Herod's sword is so that within a couple decades, it wouldn't be spared from another sword, the sword of God's wrath that would fall on him on the cross. His life was preserved as a baby, in other words, so that he could grow up and have it not preserved on the cross, where he would bear the weight of the guilt that you and I should bear, the weight of the guilt of all of those who are like Herod or like Herod's men, who kill or follow orders to kill or complacently allow this to happen. Jesus died for the sins of those who preferred their comfortable life over the whole life of another. 
who prefer their agenda, their career, their finances, their reputation, their planned future above the life of their own child. And the death of Jesus does not give us an abstract forgiveness for abstract sin. And that's the good news because sins like this, it's very easy for us to, to accept that Jesus is a Savior who, who forgives sin and think, well, my sin, there's no way. This sin is too great. I'm disqualified. Or we might say, yes, God is eager, like the prodigal son coming home and God running eagerly to give forgiveness to this son. Yeah, God's eager to do that for some of my sins, but not this one. I cannot imagine God eagerly welcoming me and wiping away my tears for this kind of sin, a Herod-like sin or the sin of Herod's men. But this is a real forgiveness that forgives real sin. It's a specific forgiveness that forgives specific sins, these sins, the sins of abortionists and those who undergo them and those who pressure people to do them. And Jesus will gladly welcome you. And maybe if you've believed that in the past and you're finding it hard to do that today, he still gladly welcomes you. He has not changed his disposition toward you. As you trust in Christ, you are so hidden in him and his righteousness that God looks at you and says, this is my beloved child. Yes, the one that's done all those things. It's forgotten. My wrath fell on the cross for that. That's my son or daughter, and I love this child. So let's look now at one more person in this story. Jesus shows us the value of human life. Herod shows us the devaluing of human life. And now Joseph, the third main character in this story. We don't often pay much attention to him. He's a silent fellow. He shows us the protection of life. I've grown to love Joseph reading this story. In some ways, Joseph's story is unique. God gave him specific instructions through angels. He was told to care for and protect not just any child, but Jesus Christ. That's all unique. But all throughout here, Joseph is a model of what we are called to do. And his own protection of Jesus shows us how we're to protect children. So I want to make four observations from Joseph's life. And with each one, let's consider, all of us, let's consider how we can learn from him. First, let us learn from his attitude toward Mary. When Mary first became pregnant, it seems that Joseph did not know what happened. He was not yet informed that this was a miracle. So what would he assume? He would assume what anyone would. She was unfaithful. She committed adultery. To anyone watching, it would seem like that's the case. Now, how did Joseph respond? Well, verse 19 of chapter 1, he was, and this is, this is the key line, unwilling to put her to shame. Not just that he didn't put her to shame, he was unwilling to put her to shame. He could have shamed her. No doubt this is what many people would have recommended he do. He could have affirmed what everyone was thinking, that yeah, she committed adultery, she cheated on him, she humiliated him by doing this, why doesn't he humiliate her? Why not expose what happened? And instead, he's unwilling to shame her. He refused to do it, though he could have. Now, what do we learn from this? Well, we need to have a Joseph-like culture of unwillingness to shame women. Certainly, there is a difference between Mary and a woman who becomes pregnant outside of marriage. Mary didn't actually do anything that's worthy of shame. But Joseph, it seems, does not know this yet. He may have thought she was guilty of a scandalous sin. And with that knowledge, he was unwilling to shame her. And Matthew says it's, this grew out of his just and righteous character. So therefore, let us not create a culture of shame. Many men pressure their girlfriends or wives into having an abortion because they fear the shame that will come if people find out. 
Many women go to the clinics because they fear the shame that will come from their father or their mother or their grandparents or their church family. Goodness. So if we as a church have a culture of shame or you in your home have a culture of shame, you will contribute to the problem. You will not help it. So instead of this, let's have a Joseph-like culture of a joyful unwillingness to shame. He honored her. He was sensitive. He cared. Second, let us learn from Joseph's adoption of Jesus. Joseph eventually was told that Mary was faithful to him. That's great news, no doubt to him. She became pregnant through a miracle, and Joseph is told to stay with her and even give Jesus his name. Now, do you see what this, jo- this angel's asking Joseph to do? It's asking Joseph to adopt Jesus. And this is in view here, because one of the things that Matthew is at pains to show is that Jesus was adopted into the Davidic line. That genealogy that came right before this story, at its heart, is about showing that Jesus has a lineage that goes back to King David, therefore he's a son of David, and he has a legal right to the throne. Well, how did he get that? Joseph was in the line of David, and Joseph adopted him, which is why Joseph is called a son of David by the angel when he's told to do this with Mary and Jesus. Supposed to, Jesus is going to get into the Davidic line and receive his legal right to the throne through adoption. Now, sometimes we talk as though parents who adopt aren't the real parents or the children who are adopted aren't really their child. And this is not true. Adoption is not a legal fiction. In the eyes of the law, when an adoption takes place, the child truly and really does become a son or daughter of the parents. Joseph adopts Jesus and becomes his real earthly father. And Jesus is really Joseph's son. And because Joseph adopts him, Jesus is truly engrafted into the line of David. Now, one of the reasons why there are so many abortions today is because people feel like they don't have options. They feel stuck. Men and women have an abortion. There are plenty of stories that confirm this, even though they know that it's a human being inside of them. Even though they might have already gone through pregnancies, believed it was a child inside the womb, and the child came to fruition as a son or daughter. They believe it, and they still undergo it. And these stories confirm that it's because they feel like they don't have options. They look at the pregnancy test. Some, maybe a young girl looks at a pregnancy test, and then she thinks of her age, 15. Or, they, or, or a couple thinks of the bank account and sees that it's hovering around zero and there's bills to pay. They're in debt. They don't know how they would raise this child. But what if, what if they went to a pregnancy help center and were able to be told You have options. You're not stuck. Let me tell you about a host of people who are joyfully, eagerly wanting and willing to adopt this precious child of yours. Can I introduce you to some of them? Can we talk about this? You do have options. What if, let's just bring this home, what if nearby here, one of these pregnancy help centers could pull out that list and it had 50 couples from Zionsville Fellowship listed on that list? opening up options to people who feel like they don't have any. Dozens of couples joyfully making themselves known as eager to help. Adoption is a primary way to care for the unborn today and to protect them. Third, let us learn from Joseph's protection. Herod gave the orders for the babies to be killed. But Joseph, in response to the angel's warning, protected Jesus and fled. He saved his child from death. Now, Joseph's protection has been reflected in many others. Abortion is not a new thing in the world. This is not some result of medical advance. This has been going on. It was going on in the first century. And the church of the first century and all throughout 
responded to this and rejected it. In fact, even the intellectuals and philosophers of the day were not only well aware of it, they were okay with it. Some of them recommended abortion and infanticide and exposure. And the church stood against this because they knew that life is valuable. They've done this throughout the centuries, and we need to continue to do this today. So how can we protect the unborn? Well, I'm not going to give a long list, an exhaustive list of ways that we can do this. We need to use our creativity. We need to use our imaginations, and I'm calling every single one of you, myself included, to do this, to take time, perhaps today, this afternoon, to sit down and think, Lord, what's the need? What does your word call us to do? So now what can I do? given my gifting, given my situations, the way you've wired me? What can I change in my life to do something? That said, here's a a few ideas. Maybe you will find yourself, or, or just things that will come to you, not only things you need to think of, but maybe you will find yourself pregnant. And maybe someone in your life will pressure you to get an abortion. With Joseph like commitment, you can stand and protect that child. Maybe you'll Make yourself available to adopt and protect a child by giving a woman this option. Maybe you will protect through legislation. The laws of our country today are immoral and unjust. And we as a people are responsible. We are the one voting. I do not mean to make this a political pulpit. My calling is to to expose God's word to us, and God's word does have political implications, just like it had political implications in Nazi Germany and in pre-civil rights America. It has political implications on this, and it should show up when we walk into that voting booth. Maybe you'll protect them by serving at a pregnancy help center. Uh, Maybe you'll help protect the unborn by starting a pregnancy help center. There's more needed. There's more needed in this country, in the needy places. There's more needed around the world. And we need entrepreneurs to do this. Maybe you'll change your career path right now and go that direction. That would be worthy. Maybe you'll protect by being ready to love someone when they tell you of their situation and of what they're thinking about. Almost everyone who has an abortion tells somebody Maybe they'll tell you, and and you're going to be ready to listen, to love, to give options, and to speak in protection of the little one. Let me commend one next step to you. We have a group at our church called Stand for Life. It's a group of people who want to help others within our church family be engaged for this cause for life. They're going to have a meeting next Sunday at 1115, right after our service, And it'll be in the church library over there. And I commend this group to you. I commend this meeting to you next Sunday. If you're involved in something already for this cause, please come there. Let them know. If you want to be involved and you haven't a clue where to start, please come there and hear ideas and get some relationships formed to start thinking together. Information about that is in your Z News sheet if you need a reminder. And I commend that meeting to you next week. Finally, let us learn from Joseph's costly obedience. This is the pattern of Joseph's life in these stories. God brings his word to him, and Joseph responds with immediate obedience, and it's always costly. He's told to remain with Mary. Well, that will cost him his reputation. What would people think? No doubt some people will think he's gullible, Right? Poor Joseph bought into the story that this is a miracle baby. Yeah, right. right. Maybe some people will say he's just admitting guilt. He did it. And he's just marrying her because he knows that's what he needs to do. I don't buy the story that it's a miracle baby. Joseph is told to protect Jesus by fleeing to Egypt. No doubt leaving a vocation, leaving friends, leaving family, leaving homeland. And in this, he's resisting the government. What is Herod going to do if he finds out what happened? What kind of response would Herod have toward him? At every step of the way, God is calling Joseph to costly obedience. And God is calling us to a costly obedience as well. Abortion is not an issue for a few of us in this room. It is an issue for every single one of us. And it will 
cost us. Reputation, time, social awkwardness, money, energy, and it is even a cost to bear this, bear the weight of this emotionally on our minds and hearts. It's a cost to refuse to forget about it. this when we walk out of here today. It's a cost to refuse to ignore the silent cries tomorrow and the next week and the next week and the next week unrelenting until there is a massive change in this country and the world until Christ comes. So let's respond right now in two ways. We'll pray to God about this and then we're going to sing together a song in response to this as well. Let's pray first. Would you pray silently for a minute before I lead us in prayer about whatever the Lord might have you pray or whatever you want to say to Him? Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your lavish grace to sinners and that your forgiveness is not abstract but specific for specific sins. And I pray that you would give overwhelming joy and peace of conscience to all who will come to you this morning, all of us to come to you and confess our culpability actively or because we've been passive and inactive. We pray for your grace and we pray that our past inaction would not make us feel like hypocrites moving forward but that we would be like your servant John Newton who wrote Amazing Grace who was a slave trader and yet he, who received your mercy and was able to mentor a man who led to the abolishing of the slave trade in his time. So we pray that you would motivate us by your great love for us and your great mercy to act and engage and love in uncountable ways. In Jesus' name, amen. The song we're going to sing is called Kyrie Eleison. It's a prayer and it's a call to respond. Kyrie means Lord and eleison means have mercy. So when we say kyrie eleison, it means Lord have mercy, mercy, or Christe eleison, Christ have mercy, because this is what we need. I will uh, also sing each verse. You'll, you'll get the feel of the verse the first time through, and you can join me on subsequent verses. We'll sing this plenty of times. There should be really full harmony on this, on this chorus. It's, it's beautiful. I know that many, if not most of you, sing harmony, so there's just lots of places to go with this uh, to give honor to God as we sing, Lord, have mercy, Christ, have mercy. Let, uh, listen to this. Kyrie eleison, have mercy. Christe eleison. Have mercy, Kyrie eleison. Have mercy, Christe eleison. Have mercy. Join me, Kyrie eleison. Have mercy, Christe eleison. Have mercy, Kyrie eleison. Have mercy, Christe eleison. Have mercy as we come before you with the needs of our world. We confess our failures and our sin. For our words are many, but our deeds have been few. Fan the fire of compassion once again. Kyrie eleison, have mercy. Christe eleison, have mercy. Kyrie eleison. 
Have mercy, crystallism. Have mercy when the cries of victims go unheard in the land and the scars of war refuse to heal. Will we stand for justice to empower the weak till their bonds of oppression are no more? Kyrie eleison, have mercy. Christe eleison, have mercy. Kyrie eleison, have mercy. Christe eleison, have mercy. Stand and sing. If we love our God with all our heart, mind, and strength, and we love our neighbors as ourselves. Then this law of love will heal the nations of earth. And the glory of Christ will be revealed. Have mercy. Have mercy. Have mercy. Have mercy, Christelaison. Have mercy. Lord, renew our vision to be Christ where we live, to reach out in mercy to the lost. For each cup of kindness to the least in our midst is an offering of worship to the throne. Kyrie eleison, have mercy. Christe eleison, have mercy. Kyrie eleison, have mercy. Christe eleison, have mercy. Kyrie eleison, have mercy. Christe have mercy. Kyrie eleison, have mercy. Christe have mercy. Well, if you've been moved in a particular way and would like to pray with someone this morning, Members of our prayer team and elders, as usual, will be, will be available and willing and eager to pray with you in the chapel, which is through that door and to the right down the hallway. And let's hear together God's benediction to us as we go. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do His will working in us that which is pleasing in His sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen.